Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. As always, it is truly a pleasure and an honor to be with each and every one of you as we uh, seek and engage uh, God together. Uh, before we pray, I want to ask you, um, later on in, uh, in our time, uh, I'm going to need you to write a couple things down. So if you have a piece of paper or a phone or a tablet or whatever you can use to jot something down, uh, ask you to have that ready. It could be your bulletin. It's not, well, it could be a huge amount of things. Uh, it just depends on what you feel in that moment. So, but it could be as short as, you know, four or five words. It could be a whole bunch more. So just please have something uh, ready for that. Um, with that, let's, uh, would you please pray with me? Dear Lord, I give you great thanks. Uh, for being here with us. Father, I give you great thanks. Jesus, I give you great thanks. Holy Spirit, I give you great thanks for being here with us and being here in a way that says that there's an intimacy that we can have with you that is so close that we, we don't even really have words to describe it. And so I ask from that place, that nearness, that closeness, that, that we would hear from you. You would open our hearts and minds that we may hear the very words that you would have for us this morning um, and that you would open us up even more to be able to respond to those. And so I pray that as we interact with you, we would find uh, the things that we read about you and the things that we know about you to be true. Um, yeah, please speak to us and help us to be more like you. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are kicking off our summer sermon series this morning. And we're going to be spending the summer going through the Gospel of Luke, hanging out with Jesus and some of the people that he interacted with, uh, and seeing what kinds of things we may discover there that God has for us. Um, before we uh, go into a new summer series or a new series at all, specifically when uh, we're looking at a book, I like to take a few minutes and give some, uh, some sort of information about the book and, in this case, about the author, uh, Luke. Um, most scholars agree that Luke was written somewhere between 62 and 80 A.D. Uh, and, and what that means is that um, it is uh, third, in, if you go in chronological order, um, that the Gospels were written. So uh, Matthew and Mark are written before that, then Luke, and then lastly, John. Uh, one of the other things that, that this means is that uh, Luke, and he even says this at the very beginning, that he's, he's gathering up all the information he can about Jesus, and he's putting it together in this way that he's trying to be as thorough as he can uh, in his uh, gospel and in the book of Acts. Um, Luke himself is a doctor, uh, which is interesting in that uh, he spends a lot of time in both the gospel and the book of Acts, uh, not only uh, recounting moments where Jesus healed people, uh, but this guy uh, who's a third uh, century uh, bishop uh, named Eusebius, he uh, said that Luke's secondary concern after telling the story of Jesus is the spiritual health of his readers. And so it's interesting to me that in the, the things that he wrote, um, we, I think we often think about people writing uh, the books of the Bible and it's like they kind of all of a sudden close their eyes and just let the pen go. Um, but, I, but I think what we discover here is that God actually 
sort of inspires the people in who they are, that, that Luke is a doctor, and so some of that stuff comes out in his writing, and we're going to see that a little bit later also. Uh, sort of a piece of trivia, uh, Luke is uh, responsible for more of the New Testament than any other author. Uh, we, a lot of us think that it's Paul, um, but uh, Luke, uh, his writings make up about 28% of the New Testament, and he's got about 5,000 more words than Paul. So, if that ever comes up in trivia, you can tell people to sit down and be quiet, because you know that it's Luke. Um, so, the other thing that I want you to know uh, and take note of is as we're going through the Gospel of Luke, um, you may find it odd that um, in, in the sort of going through these stories about Jesus, that we're not going to take any Sundays to specifically address uh, the story of his birth, his death, or resurrection. And for some of you, that might be like, oh, whoa, well, those are like the kind of the key ones, Greg. Like, what's up with that? Um, and what I, um, what I want us to, to, to note is that, um, first of all, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be teaching anything about Jesus if we didn't believe those things were true, right? For everyone to come here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to hear an interesting character study on someone from the past— uh, we could find way better things to do with our time. And so the reality is, is even though we're not going to spend a whole Sunday addressing those specific stories, if you listen, hopefully you will hear that those are in every single sermon that we preach. Uh, and so please, as you, as you listen to what we talk about, uh, listen for those moments, because we believe in all of those. Um, and I, I just wanted you to know that as we go through that, if you're like, oh, where are those big, those big moments? Um, that, that they're in there. We're just not hitting those specifically. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at this passage that I think is uh, interesting, not so much because uh, we've memorized it or a lot of people have studied it. It's not like one that they've written a lot of books about or anything like that. But it is one that I think a lot of us can relate to some of the things that Jesus is going through or the people he's with are going through. Uh, there's more stuff in there, but I think this story has some very interesting uh, connections uh, with people uh, and with us. And so we're going to uh, jump into the passage. It's Luke 4. Uh, 14 through 30. And I'm supposed to press this authoritatively. And now I'm going to ask Justin to press it. He's much better at it. Look at that. There we go. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, as it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. 
I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, before we sort of explore that passage, one of the things that I have found helpful to do, just to give me a little bit better understanding and kind of framework for some of these stories, is to... Is to take a look at the geography of of the land that we're looking at and the reason i want to do this is whenever i think of the biblical stories and i start naming these names of cities capernaum you got galilee you've got nazareth these regions these cities all this stuff it, it's i don't know where they're at and, and i see it as like these really disconnected places um but if we look up here so we've got this is the sea of galilee um and if we can go to the next slide this area here, this is the region of Galilee. It's not quite exact. It's not an exact circle, but that's what you get. Um, but so, so you can kind of see this is the area of Galilee where it talks about Jesus has been going through this area preaching in the synagogues. If we can go to the next slide. So I've adjusted the size of the Sea of Galilee just for the, the purpose of what I'm going to show you. And again, when I look at this, just looking at this, I don't have any idea for how big that is or, or whatever. So if we can go to the next slide. This is Seattle, and in between Seattle and Bellevue, right there, kind of just over on this side, is Lake Washington. So go back to the previous one. Sea of Galilee, Lake Washington. Sea of Galilee, Lake Washington. Okay, now all of a sudden, that really helps me to go, oh, the Sea of Galilee from one end to the other is like Seattle to Kenmore, right? And, and then I go, oh... So when, when they talk about news traveling around the countryside and all this stuff, they're talking about what I would consider a rather small area. And so what we're talking about is people just sharing what they've heard. It's not necessarily there was some big newscast that was, you know, sent by scroll, by camel or whatever, but there's people just talking, people in the markets, people going from village to village, from neighborhood to neighborhood that have relationships sharing this information. If we can go to the next slide, please. So this is Nazareth down here. So it's off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's probably about 10 miles off the shore. Um, And then the next one. And this is Capernaum. So Nazareth is the town that uh, Jesus is in for this story. But there's a reference to, the, he's quoting what the people are going to say about, come and do the things we heard about you doing in Capernaum and come and do those here. So it's really easy to see, especially the next slide. So this is Seattle basically to just north of Duval, right? Echo Lake. And so all of a sudden now I have a better framework for how, oh, how this word traveled. Oh, well, this is, I have friends who live in Duval. We've had people who lived in Duval come and attend church here, right? So it's, it's not that all of a sudden far away. Um, and uh, granted, they didn't have cars, but even uh, Google Maps says to walk this could be anywhere uh, if it's a straight line from, uh, from six to like 20 hours. And so uh, on the longer end, it might take you a while to get there. But if you're doing business, you would go in for a few days or something like that. So uh, they would make the trip. So 
Uh, and we can go to the next slide. Uh, but just to have that in our minds, because again, it helps me understand that there's a relational aspect here that I often don't get. That when I think about news traveling uh, and, and word traveling, I don't often think about it just like two, two people who happen to do business together who know each other saying, oh yeah, well, did you hear about Jesus? Like there's this guy, Jesus going around. He was just in our town. All of a sudden it gets back to his hometown um, and all these people are like, whoa, what's going on with this guy we know? So um, just, I think that helps as we start to think about this to kind of picture how things um, are happening. So we start off this passage with Jesus returning to Galilee, that region, that uh, circular area that I showed you um, that I said wasn't really a circle, but that's as close as we get. That region, he's there. He's preaching through all the synagogues. And not only does he return, um, it says that he returns in the power of the Spirit, that everyone has heard about what he's doing. And in fact, it says that news is spread throughout the countryside. And that Jesus is going through all these places, teaching in the synagogues, and that everyone is praising him. It's, it's from that place, with that kind of momentum and that kind of push, that he goes to his hometown, the place where he was brought up. Now, how many of you have had the experience of moving away from home or moving away from your hometown? Okay, lots of us have. Okay, now... We may not have had the experience of going into all the neighboring cities or neighborhoods and, and having everyone praise us. But maybe you left home or your hometown to go to school. And, and, and maybe you have some classmates who, who really like you. And maybe you're doing really well in school. Maybe you're very good at some things. Or maybe you moved away to go to work and you're really good at your job. And the people around you are saying, wow, this is fantastic. We're so glad you're here. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's the opposite of that. But the point is that when we move away, there are things that change, and then there are some things that stay the same, right? Moving away has this really weird and interesting process. Uh, Artist Marina Abramovic, um, there's this amazing video on YouTube, and you can go watch it. Just look up uh, Marina Abramovic. Um, (laughs) Actually, look up, look up Ule, U-L-A-Y. It's so much easier to remember. Uh, but anyway, so uh, this artist who in 2010 did this, uh, did this piece where it's called uh, The Artist is Present. And, and what she would do is just in this big room, set up uh, a table and two chairs. And she would sit in one chair and kind of sit there with her eyes closed. And then any stranger who wanted to can come and sit in the other chair. And there was some kind of signal or something. And then she would just look up and look at them for a minute there wasn't any like interaction there wasn't any waving on her part she was sitting and just being present and acknowledging this person and when you watch the video of this there are of the the people who come in some of them are smiling some of them are like what is this i don't get this some of them are looking like who are you and and, and there's all this stuff being communicated 30 years previous to this, she was in a relationship with this guy named Ule. Now, um, they're both artists, and so there's, in their lives, there are a lot of things that they've done to express who they are. And when their relationship ended, what they did was they each walked to opposite ends of the Great Wall of China, and they walked until they met, and then they hugged, and then they left right? There's, this art is part of their life. These statements are the way they do things. So when she's doing this piece, 
this is, this is her doing what she does. Like, this is her being the most her she can be. And it's super vulnerable. So, over the 30 years since they had uh, ended their relationship, they bumped into each other at different art gatherings, but didn't intentionally seek each other out to spend time together. On this particular day, the opening day of this piece, where she's sitting with strangers, in the video you see this man walk up, and he looks, he's kind of fidgeting, and he straightens his coat out a little bit, and you find out that this is Ule. So it's been really 30 years since they've had kind of, this is very intentional interaction, right? It's not like, hey, how you doing? This is, I'm sitting across from you, and all you're going to do is look at each other. And when she looks up, you can see all that history that was lived together take place. And you can see Ule, he kind of like shakes his head. And there are all these moments like you can see both of them for one instance go, what are you doing here? Why am I here? This feels awkward. And at the same time going, remember this and, and the wonder and the joy and the sadness and all of those become present and her rule for this was that she would not interact any more than to look at and acknowledge the person across from them but at 40 seconds in with ule she reaches her hands out across the table and they hold hands and then when the minute's over they let go and he gets up and walks away when we return to places it is loaded with emotion, with expectations, with all kinds of things. And so when I read this story, I have to wonder what is going on for both Jesus and the people that he's going to interact with, right? That, you know, he's going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he's going to take this role of speaker and teacher. And some ask, like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, wasn't he a carpenter? And maybe others are saying, yeah, but have you heard about what he did in the neighborhood just down the road? People are being healed, right? He's doing some amazing things. What's he going to do here? Was he nervous? Did he have butterflies in his stomach? Did he know all day, yeah, this is the passage I'm going to talk about, or did he really just turn to it? What are these people hoping for from him? The rest of the passage, I think, indicates some of the things that both the people were hoping for and that Jesus is hoping for. When we go through this smaller section of this, verses 16 through 20, there are some interesting clues in this fascinating literary structure that I think helps uh, show what's happening here. It starts by saying, uh, he stands up, right? He moves from a place of sitting to standing up. It says, then he's handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It says he unrolls the scroll. Then it says he reads it. But then it says he rolls the scroll back up. He says, instead of being handed it, he hands it back to the attendant. And then instead of standing, he sits down. So there's a, a movement up. There's this sort of, uh, you know, climax moment where he reads the passage. And then there's a complete undoing of what he had done. Where in one instance, he's standing. At the end, he's sitting. Where in one instance, he's handed the scroll, he's handed it back. And it's written this way, an exact response, except for the reading. And so the reading sits alone. And when he's done with the reading, it says, all eyes are on him. Everything points to 
what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down. What is he going to do in this moment? With all that expectation present, with all the questions about who he is, anyone can get up there and read the passage. But now everyone wants to know, what is he going to do? What is he going to say next? And what he says is, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everything I just said is happening today, and I am the one, the anointed one. I am the herald of the good news. I am the healer for the sick and the one who releases captives. And it says next that everyone speaks well of him, that they're amazed at the gracious words that come from his lips. In a few moments, we're going to shift tone a little bit to you're amazing and these words are amazing to we're going to drive you out of this place and try to push you off a cliff. But what happens? Because what happens next is some people ask, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, in asking that, there's different ways this has been interpreted. One of the ways is that people uh, feel that this was said with this kind of tone. Isn't that Joseph's kid? I remember him when he was little, and I'd never thought of him about, he's not Messiah material, I can tell you that, right? He was not, I didn't think he was going to amount to much of anything. Right? He was kind of a goof as a kid. Don't you remember? He's always saying those weird things or, you know, whatever. So, and, and the reason we think that is because a lot of us have experienced that. We come back to some place. Maybe we've been at school or we're at a job or something, but we come back home and people see us the way we were. And they remember us that way. And so it's hard for us to break out of that. The other way is that the people were saying, hey, isn't that Joseph's son? He's one of us. He's from our town. Why, I remember changing his diapers, or I taught him this at school. And if this is all true, these things that he's been doing, what might he do for us? We're his neighbors. I mean, you know, we're so close with his family and everything. Some scholars think that the people were already beginning to dream of what Jesus could do and how they could work that for their best interest, or that if Jesus was the Messiah, he would surely have some special favor for his hometown. One author said that the positive response to Jesus by his audience within the synagogue was based on a narrow and provincial understanding of his identity and mission. They have filtered his message through their restrictive presumptions about him. Have you ever had somebody restrict you by what they thought you were, who they thought you were? Right? I, in the first service, I, I told this story about when Angie and I had, we had two Rottweilers, and Rottweilers have a certain reputation. Uh, and so we would be walking down the street with our two Rottweilers, uh, and people could be a block and a half away and see us, and they would cross over to the other side. Right? They didn't want anything to do with us. And at the time, I had this big, long goatee that was braided. And so there were times, at least I thought, Angie corrected me on this, but I still am wondering about it, where she would say something like, well, it might not be just the dogs, right? That you might, 
when I told that earlier, she was sitting right back there. She's like, I didn't say that. And I was like, but I knew you were thinking it. Um, so, but, but it happens to us. And sometimes we do that to people, right? I always, I, I never remember when someone told me, if, if you're driving uh, on the, on the, on-ramps and off-ramps to the freeway, and you have the, the people there who are, uh, have the homeless signs and all that, uh, if you see them and they've got new shoes, don't give them money because they've obviously got money. And I remember thinking, oh, that could be true. Or it could be that someone gave them new shoes, right? But, but my, our assumption is to want to think they're working the system somehow, that they've actually got enough to pay for everything they need, and now they're just doing this because if they have no sho- new shoes, they obviously have money. So we make these assumptions without really knowing what's really going on. And we try to make them what we want them to be. And so these people, there might be the sense that that's what they're doing with Jesus. And what he does, I think, uh, shows that that's what's happening. So his response to this is to press in. And he, uh, he says this. He says, you're going you're gonna to quote this proverb to me. And when we think of when we hear the word proverb, we think of the, the, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, which is good. We should do that. But uh, when, when Jesus says proverb here, he's not speaking of that. He's speaking of uh, the proverb is just a common saying. It could be anywhere in the culture. I do think it's interesting that Luke, as a physician, remembers out of the stories that he's collected and stories he's been told, remembers this one, physician, heal yourself. Because he probably knows what that statement's about. And not just within medical practitioners, but in the common culture, what the statement meant was, you got to take care of yourself and the people that you love. Right? You can't just take care of everyone who comes to you, everyone who pays you for that care. You got to take care of you and your own. He follows this up by saying, you're also going to say, do here in your hometown what we heard that you've done in Capernaum. We're your own people. You're one of us. You're our boy. Where's what we want? Are you going to do that stuff for us, right? Surely you will, right? I mean, we have this special connection. This stuff you're talking about is fine, but what we really want is something different. I think that Jesus see people, sees people who are eager to use him, eager to make him something, eager to be blessed, but eager to have him make all their problems go away, eager for him to get rid of Rome and the oppression that comes from them and any other, other enemies they may have. They want him to set them up as the new world power, empowered by God Almighty forever and ever. And if it's true that he is the one who's come to do all these things, then let's do it, but do it for us. And what Jesus does in response to that is he calls out two of the big dog prophets of Elijah and Elisha. And he says, you know, no prophet doesn't work for them in their hometowns. And here's two examples of not hometown, but home people. It's not even going to be hometown. I'm talking about people. You're going to say you're one of us. Let me tell you what you do with the ones you say are one of us. Right? So he talks about Elijah and how during this three and a half year famine that he could have been going around to helping lots of widows in Israel, but God doesn't call him to do that. He calls him to this one outside of Israel. And Elisha, when he's healing people and cleansing people of leprosy, there are lots of people within Israel he could have cleansed, but he doesn't. He goes outside. Jesus says, this isn't just for you. You're included absolutely positively, but it's not just for you, and you don't get special favor. And the thought that I am here just for you and that you might get something from me or you can work me in a specific way may be the very thing that keeps you distant from me. 
I am not your performing monkey. And the mood in the room changes. They run Jesus out of the synagogue, out of town, up to the top of a hill where there's a cliff in an attempt to throw him off, to drive him off, but in one of the most bizarre and unsatisfying endings of any section of Scripture, it says he walks through the crowd. I have to tell you, as a martial artist, that's a skill that I wish I had. Because you watch, I was just watching... uh, one of the Matrix movies the other day, and Neo's fighting like hundreds, thousands of Agent Smith. I'm like, he could have just walked through the crowd. That would have been really helpful, right? Just kind of slip through everyone. Pardon me, pardon me. I don't know how Jesus did it. I wish I did. But something in all of this stirred the people. Something Jesus said, his response to their presumptions about what it meant to follow him. How will we respond to the truth of Jesus. So I'm going to take a few moments and look at what Jesus said specifically. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has sent me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So who are the poor? We want to think of just the economically poor. And while they are certainly included in that group in ancient times and still today, there are many other reasons why we and others might consider someone to be poor. Scripture itself talks about people who are poor in spirit. I have heard all kinds of times in sermons about money, like someone may have a lot of money, but they're not happy. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends. Okay, in the ancient world and still today, there are issues attached to gender and ethnicity that we may address someone and view them as being poor. Jesus' mission is directed to the poor, not defined merely in subjective, spiritual, or personal, or economic terms, but in this holistic sense to those who are, for any reason, relegated to positions outside the boundaries of God's people. So anyone who's considered an outsider the outcast, the ones who some may say are beyond God's reach or his grace. These are the poor. Now, as I've been talking about this, there may have been people you know that have come to your mind. If that has happened, I would like you to write down or enter into your phone some of those names. If it hasn't happened, I want you to try to think of some people and write them down, enter them into your phone. He says that he's come to bring freedom and release for the prisoners. Well, who are they? That's everyone who's bound by sin and everyone who's enslaved to and under the impression of sin in this world. That's going to be a bigger list because that's all of us. So write them down. Recovery of sight for the blind. Who are the blind? In Luke, blindness has both a physical and a spiritual reality. That there are spots in Luke where people who are blind are healed and can see again. But it's also used as a metaphor for people who are living in darkness. Everything comes into the light. There's revelation about God's goodness and what it means to belong in God's family. Do you know anyone who is living in darkness? Write their name down. And then it talks about the year of the Lord's favor. And this is the Jubilee year where where everyone's debt was forgiven. Monetary debts, land debts, whatever kind of debt you can think of was forgiven. And 
And so it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven. All can be forgiven. Joel Green says that Jesus' ministry is to all, and especially looking at this section, to those who have no claim to status or favor with God. And that the challenge for the people of Nazareth is that their assumption that Jesus will act as one of them, or for us, that he's going to act as one of us, the way we want him to, he says this is their inhibiting vision of who he is and what he will accomplish, and it stands as the primary obstacle to their receiving him. I think we often like to think of God in ways that work for us. Work for us mentally, work for us spiritually, work for us financially, but just work for us. How do you think of Jesus this morning? Who do you know him to be? Who have you seen him to be? Who have you heard of him to be? Because when I read this and I think about these things, it feels like what I see and what I read is that Jesus is moving outward, always outward, moving further out. Isaiah, or in the Old Testament, it talks about spreading out your tent, making more room. It's God's intent that all things be reconciled to himself, every person, place, or thing. And he sent Jesus so that could be possible. He's invited us to participate in that work, but we have to have a heart for the poor. We have to have a heart for the prisoners, for the blind and the oppressed. And we have to not only proclaim the good news of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, but we have to live it. So what do you do with Jesus' words this morning? How do you respond? When Jesus approaches you and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has sent me to proclaim good news to your friend who's lost their job and kind of spiraling. God has sent me to proclaim freedom for your boss who is working herself too hard in order to be productive and efficient. He sent me to bring recovery of sight for your classmate who continues in the same damaging cycle of bad decisions and cannot see a way out or a hopeful future. I've come to set your enemies free and to proclaim and live out the year of the Lord's favor. On that day, Jesus said, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And please hear me say that I am not trying to assume that I am Jesus, but I am standing in front of you empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak. And today, I want you to hear this. We are Christ's ambassadors who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. The Spirit of the Lord is on you because He has sent you to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent you to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What way do you hear Jesus' words this morning? I have a couple of questions i'd like to have you think about you can write these on your connection card piece that's in your uh bulletin um first who are the people in your life that you have thought of during our time together this morning so those people that you wrote their names down if you could write your name on that those names on the connection card we can join you in praying for and even asking you what's been going on with them the thing i want to add is that for some of you the people you thought of may have been yourself You may be someone who's living under oppression. You may be someone who um, feels like you're living in darkness. Um, you, 
you may have been that person that you thought of and so you can feel free to add yourself to that list second question can you see any movement by god in those people's lives where do you see god moving where do you see him active in those people's lives and third what is one specific thing that god may be inviting you to do to love care for and reach out to these people uh, worship team if you could come up uh, and if you when you're done with those connection cards if you could put them in the wood uh, boxes in the back let's let's pray dear lord again i am deeply thankful for your presence with us that that we who were once your enemies for many of us we we are now your friends that, that you have come to us as the the oppressed as the blind as the ones who needed to hear that we could be forgiven that the distance between us didn't have to stay that way so I give you great thanks for that i pray that as we spend time in that reality that you would give us a heart to say to everyone this is for you also everyone can experience this nearness with the creator of the universe And so I pray we would go to all the places we're in and proclaim the good news to the poor. Bring sight to the blind. Bring the news of release for the oppressed. And I give you thanks for your work in our lives to do that. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.